listening to SBS On The Money with Ricardo Gonsalves. Hi everyone, it's your daily 10-minute business and finance news wrap for this Thursday, the 17th of February 2022 from the SBS newsroom. It might be closer to 20 minutes today because we've got two special CEO interviews, one with the CEO of West Farmers and one with Telstra. And also a bit later, we'll go in more detail through the jobs data from the ABS, uh, 4.2% unemployment rate, nearly 13,000 jobs created, and that's despite Omicron spreading through the economy. So we'll find out what that means for interest rates. But first, let's talk about West Farmers. That's the diversified company that owns retailers like Bunnings and Officeworks and Kmart. It posted a near 13% fall in half-year profit and a reduced dividend. So I spoke with its CEO, Rob Scott, earlier today and asked him what kind of COVID-related disruptions had happened in the half. The last half was our most challenging from a COVID point of view. Uh, Around 25% of our trading days were impacted by COVID-related restrictions to our retail stores. And on 20,000 trading days for the half, our stores were required under the government requirements to be closed. So clearly it was a very disruptive period. And then on top of that, I, I think another part of the disruption that is really important to call out is the personal cost, the human cost of lockdowns. And we're seeing that in terms of uh, the anxiety that people have when they don't have secure income and the concerns about not being able to travel and so forth. And we did everything we could to try and support our team members by continuing to pay our team when they weren't able to work because of store closures, providing additional COVID leave. Uh, that cost us about 40 million for the half, but it was an investment that we were very pleased to make because of the importance of our team to the future of our businesses. What about supply chain disruptions? How have they hit the organisation across the portfolio? Um, And has there been an improvement more recently? Well, early on in COVID, the disruptions that we felt most acutely were the international supply chain disruptions. And there is still some uh, volatility and disruption in terms of international shipping routes and so forth. But our businesses are managing those fairly well. What we noticed last half was more domestic supply chain disruption. So in particular, that related to some capacity constraints with last mile delivery, given the very strong growth uh, of online parcel delivery uh, combined with the COVID impacts. Also distribution centres in Australia were struggling uh, to get people along for work because of all the isolation requirements and COVID cases. Now we have seen that start to improve uh, over the last month. We've seen uh, case levels decrease, absenteeism decrease, but I think there'll still be some ongoing challenges, but it's nowhere near as severe as it was in recent months. A lot of talk at the moment within the economic circles and business circles is that of inflation. So to what extent are you seeing price rises within your business? And do you see this more as an entrenched issue or something that's a bit more um, temporary? Well, yeah, interestingly, we are seeing quite widespread cost price pressures across our businesses. They're in raw material prices. We talked about challenges with international shipping rates as well. Um, and then there are some isolated areas of significant wage pressure in in some categories uh, of the workforce. So what we're doing across West Farmers, we, you know, because of our scale and the sophistication of our 
merchandise teams, we are able to mitigate some of those costs um, to try and reduce the impact of price increases to our customers. Because we do think that with the broader inflationary pressures, Householders will households will become more focused on value in the year ahead. So we're doing what we can to help them. Just a few more things. Um, I'm not sure where you're where you are at at the moment with this, but you you recently made that move from from Perth to Melbourne. Are you still working out of Melbourne? Um, and if so, um, how much longer do you expect to stay in Victoria because of these closed uh, state borders in Western Australia? Yeah, Ricardo. So we, uh, myself and a number of our leadership team are heading over to to Melbourne and Sydney uh, this weekend, actually. So once we're through these results uh, today uh, and we'll be over there, I'll certainly be over east for uh, until early April. We have many, many meetings we've been deferring for months and months in terms of engaging with our leadership team, meeting the API team that I'm really looking forward to meeting, meeting with other uh, important investors, of our business uh, and also also meeting up with the teams that are involved in some of our key strategic projects, including our data and digital strategy. So we'll head over there and look, ho- hopefully we'll see the borders reopen soon uh, because at the moment with a seven day isolation requirement, it becomes impractical to fly back and forth on a regular basis. Do you think there's some longer term damage made to WA's reputation as a place to do business because of these closed borders and government policies? Well, it's an interesting question. I, I think the longer the borders remain closed, I think it's inevitable that there will be some some damage there. Uh, but look, I'm I'm actually feeling more optimistic at the moment. When you look at the data, when you look at the improvements we're seeing on the East Coast in terms of case numbers, the higher levels of vaccination, I, I suspect we're becoming very close in WA to being able to reopen the borders. And our focus really needs to be more on the local community contagion and containment uh, rather than the borders, which uh, don't seem to be the biggest problem at the moment. Rob Scott there, the CEO of West Farmers and West Farmers shares down 7.5%, actually the worst performing on the 200 today. Investors not really liking that reduced dividend there. Now to Telstra, which today posted a 34% fall in first half profit to $743 million, maintaining its dividend $0.08 per share there. Um, But its share price fell 4.2%. So I first asked its CEO, Andy Penn, what he'd tell investors. Look, certainly I can understand why it was a hard result to read through because uh, what we're seeing in our reported result is the last transitional impacts of the MBN. And as I think as investors know, things like the one-off MBN payments, commercial works, that type of thing, that's all running off. But what came through was we're seeing underlying growth in EBITDA, that was up 5% EPS, underlying basis was up 55%. What's actually going to happen is those two things are going to converge. And we put out some pretty clear financial ambitions of mid-single digit EBITDA growth out to FY25 and high teens earnings per share growth out to 2025. And, And today was just evidence we're on that journey. I've seen a lot of commentary today about how Telstra is trying to uh, keep ahead of its shrinking legacy business and reinvent itself. So how is Telstra different now compared to when you became CEO in 2015? Well, look, we're a vastly different company. Through our T22 strategy, we have radically simplified the business. We took 1,800 plans down to 20. We've taken a third of our workforce out, 20,000 
27,000 headcount, both direct and indirect, over the last sort of three and a half years. A third of our cost base, that's $2.7 billion. We've halved the number of products in enterprise, and we're seeing that pay off for our shareholders and for our customers. Notwithstanding today's share price was a bit disappointing, we are up sort of 30, 40% over the last sort of 12 or 18 months. Uh, episode NPS, NPS is up 11 points over the last 12 months. Our employee engagement's up. So we're in good shape. And importantly, we are very well positioned for what we're looking at of the world of the future, which is the world of you know, increased digital adoption, demand for data, demand for connectivity. And, and so that's why we're announcing some of those big investment projects, which we did a couple of weeks ago. Um, Telstra is one of Australia's most widely held stock when it comes to investments, mainly, I guess, for its dividend, well, one of the reasons for its dividend policy. Any plans to change it? No, there's, there's no plans to change the dividend policy. Importantly, today what we did do is we increased our ordinary dividend. Our total interim dividend was the same, but it's currently comprised of an ordinary component and a special component. The special component's coming down as we move out the back of MBN and the ordinary component is increasing. As I mentioned, we've got an aspiration to get earnings per share into the high teens growth all the way out to FY25. That is a key factor driving our ability to increase the dividend. And in addition to that, we're throwing off cash greater than our accounting profits, which also gives us money to invest in the business and return uh, capital to shareholders as we're currently doing for an on-market buyback. New South Wales and Victoria today announcing that they're easing COVID restrictions slowly, encouraging people to return to work, the end of mask mandates towards the end of the month. So how's Telstra going to be navigating that, given there's a, a, a greater number of people, A, working from home or working flexibly, and, and will you be encouraging staff to return to the office? Well, Ricardo, I hadn't actually caught up with those um, that latest news, so that's, uh, that's really encouraging to hear. One of the things that we've said very clearly is we are adopting hybrid ways of working as our, as our norm for business. What that means is we're providing the flexibility for people to work from where they want, when they want, how they want. That doesn't mean to say we want everybody to work from home all the time. There's lots of things that we need to do and can do in the office together uh, that are about collaboration, innovation, celebration. And so, yes, we'll be finding ways that we can uh, help our people be in the office for the things they need to be in the office for. So that's... Uh, that's encouraging to hear. But um, hybrid is, we, I mean, even before COVID, we um, had a very flexible way of working. Because this is big push to get people to return back to the office and you're one of the larger employers, um, do you think governments will have um, a big challenge on their hands to get people to return to the CBD or to return to the office now, given that, I guess, this hybrid workplace or this work from home um, situation is becoming more common? Look, I think that um, there is going to be a degree to which it's going to require a bit of a transition. Um, you know, the reality is, uh, I will sort of say, we shouldn't confuse flexible working with working from home during COVID. There was nothing flexible about that. We're all basically locked in at home. So we're promoting flexible ways of working. So work in a hybrid way from where you want, but there's definitely things we need to do together in the office. And, and I do think it's going to take a little bit of time and support for people who've probably become a little bit of in institutionalised and used to working from home. And so uh, that's something that we're going to do by encouraging people. We, we've, we've got this concept, we're going to do O-Week, Orientation Week, um, in uh, in a few weeks' time, 
really just encouraging people in talking about some of the dynamics and uh, just thinking innovatively about how we create those moments for people to experience what it was like to be in the office rather than dictate people coming into the office. Telstra CEO Andy Penn there. Now, before we go to the rest of the share market, let's talk the economy and Australia's employment market because the unemployment rate in January, according to the Bureau of Statistics, remained steady at 4.2%. In fact, 12,900 jobs were created last month, predominantly part-time. Those numbers because the participation rate, that's the proportion of people that are in the workforce or looking for work, actually rose to 66.2%, and that's all despite the spread of Omicron keeping people at home. However, there were lots of hours worked less as a result. So what does this all mean for interest rates? Earlier, I spoke with Diana Messina. She's a senior economist at AMP Capital. I think it was a pretty decent outcome overall, the employment figure that we got for January. Some of the weekly activity indicators that we tracked in January fell. Things like hotel bookings, foot traffic, restaurant reservations, mobility. So we were looking for a larger fall, or actually a fall in employment over January. I think what the January data is telling us is that the economy is learning better in terms of how to deal with COVID. But there's a few reasons for that. One, because the vaccines are working to make COVID less of a severe disease so people can get on with their lives. Secondly, Omicron cases tend to be pretty mild. So uh, people can, again, get on with their lives a bit faster. There's less hospitalizations. And three, businesses are learning how to adapt to the pandemic and how to deal with COVID and how to change their business hours and employee times. And the, the main way that COVID impacted the January data was through a fall in hours worked, which were down by nearly 9%. Yeah, let's explore that a bit more, because what does that mean for lost productivity? These hours work down almost 9%. And ultimately, will it have a, a lasting impact on the economy? Well, what we've seen from the past two years' worth of data is that we get these big shifts in employment growth when you have a lockdown in one of the states or, or territories when you have a change in restrictions, but it doesn't tend to be long-lasting. It tends to be a one-off impact. So I don't think that the weakness we saw in hours worked is going to be repeated because we know that Omicron cases peaked on the 14th of January. So February data for the labour market is likely to be a lot stronger and across other indicators as well. So I don't think it will be a long-lasting effect. And while it may have a short-term negative impact on productivity, I don't think that productivity growth in the long term is going to be affected. Okay, so given this report, you know, and we're still seeing a bit of tightness in the, well, quite a fair bit of tightness in the labour market, do you think it will lead to wages growth? We have a pretty aggressive outlook for wages growth in the next six months. We think that annual wages growth will reach 3% by the middle of this year. In contrast, the Reserve Bank thinks that wages growth is only going to get to 3% per annum in a year's time, so in June 2023. That's a long time away. There's a lot of indicators that show us there's tightness in the labour force. Labour underutilisation is just over 10% at the moment, which is a measure of underemployment and the unemployment rate. Before the pandemic, it was over 14% of the labour force. So, there are genuine signs that there are some wage pressures building in the system. And also the higher inflation prints that we're getting in Australia and around the world could actually lead to higher wages growth as well uh, because there is this very circular 
relationship between wages and inflation. It's not always the case that wages growth drives inflation. Sometimes it can be the other way around as well because businesses, when they do their planning, they actually use inflation forecasts for wage growth assumptions for their staff. Okay, so this is another piece of the jigsaw when it comes to what the Reserve Bank will do with interest rates. So considering this latest jobs report, the fall in the number of hours worked as well, what does it say about the timing of the next interest rate rise from the Reserve Bank, which is likely to be the first in 10 years? The employment market is very strong. You can see that across all forward-looking indicators of jobs growth, job vacancies, hiring intentions, all across the business survey. So I think that labour force is going to remain in a very solid position for 2022. I mean, of course, there are risks here. There's a risk that we might get a more severe strain of COVID-19. We still can't rule that out as poor countries are only 20% fully vaccinated. So we might see a new strain emerge. We may see that the opening of the borders leads to weakness in employment growth uh, because the monthly employment survey actually only measures domestic jobs, not those Uh, that are related to people who are here for a a short period of time or a short visit. So that could lead to some weakness as well. But overall, the the state of the economy is in a very strong position. Wages growth is coming through and should be confirmed in uh, the wages report that we get next week. And the inflation data is coming through as well. So we think that the Reserve Bank will need to raise interest rates probably by August this year and then again in September. But the risk at the moment from the high inflation data is that they'll have to move sooner, perhaps May or June. The timing of the election does complicate the month in which they're expected to move. Diana Messina there from AMP Capital and a quick look at the Australian share market up 0.2%, 7,296. Earlier, I spoke with Gemma Dale from NAB Wealth. It's an extraordinary day. It's Deep in reporting season at the moment, there's just an incredible volume of results coming to market. Interestingly enough, it looked kind of benign, the overall result to the market was only up half a percent or so, but it was coming from everywhere. There were some uh, pretty disappointing results, there were some spectacular results, and it's kind of flushed out. And what was driving the market, the really, really big numbers at the top end of the index actually didn't result, uh, didn't report their results today at all. So BHP was up 2% and CSL is the one that's come roaring back. It was under a huge amount of pressure before their results yesterday. People were really concerned that their blood plasma donations were going to be really constrained and therefore really impact uh, their future profitability, even though the results were disappointing relative to previous results, analysts were really happy with them. So there was an 8% bounce yesterday, 4% today. It's the third largest stock on the exchange. And, uh, and so healthcare did really well. We had the jobs data come out today as well, uh, still at a 13-year low, despite it staying at 4.5%, uh, 4.2% in January. Uh, The numbers seem to suggest that we might get higher interest rates sooner. So what will a higher interest rate environment mean for shareholders and and what are the opportunities to invest? That's such a good question and it's one that people keep asking themselves over and over again. It's been the big question for the last few months. Rates rising. In Australia, it's very beneficial for investors who hold stocks in the financial sector. So banks have been under enormous pressure over the last decade. Their net interest margin, which is effectively how they've made money, the difference between what you lend and what you borrow, that's your net interest margin. And for so many Australian investors, they have a lot of exposure to banks and you can see 
a little bit of uplift in the bank share prices after reporting season or their results anyway, uh, and also just coming through as investors are confident that interest rates are going to rise, they're going to rise pretty quickly, perhaps more quickly than they expected, and they may rise higher than expected also. I was looking at the NAB Economist analysis of the most recent labour market data, and they're very confident that that is going to put real pressure on the RBA. We're looking for that uplift in wages as well. So that is where the RBA has been less certain that there is a real incentive for them to raise rates, but you can't keep them at close to zero forever. And it is having effects on other parts of the economy that may be less positive and house prices is the best example. So for investors, they look to financials to benefit from rising rates, but there are many other parts, obviously, of the market that are not going to do so well. And that's particularly the tech sector and anything that's very highly leveraged. Those guys are under a lot of pressure at the moment. Jim Medell there from NAB Trade. This SBS On The Money podcast is provided for informational purposes only. The content on this podcast should not be understood as constituting advice or a recommendation. It is not personal advice and does not consider your personal circumstances or objectives. You should contact a licensed professional before making any financial decision. Thank you.